You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We turn now to Plato, one of the most engaging figures in the history of philosophy and the man of whom Alfred North Whitehead said that the rest of philosophy consists merely of footnotes to Plato. To devote an hour lecture to Plato as a species of high crime and misdemeanor, I'm reminded of some words of a colleague of mine when I was a very young professor who said that when you begin teaching, you teach far more than you know. And when you're middle-aged, you teach what you know. And when you're old, you teach far less than you know. It would seem self-flattery for me to apply that to myself, although I'm certainly old. But it is in the nature of these courses in the International Catholic University to, in the lectures that form the kind of core of the presentation, to proceed in a fairly summary way and moving very rapidly over great stretches of material because, of course, this will be supplemented by your reading and writing if you take the course for credit. And even if you don't, you will be able to find on our website those lessons, and you'll know what people do if they do it for credit. There are no secrets in our operation, because, again, the purpose of this effort is to make as widely known as possible the elements of the Catholic patrimony. And the Catholic patrimony cannot be understood without the history of philosophy, not simply philosophy as it took place within Christian times, but also in terms of its antecedents in pagan antiquity. And that is what we are currently looking at. And we've arrived at the point where we're going to try to, in very brief compass, say something about the philosophy of Plato. Now, Plato died, as I mentioned earlier, in about the mid-4th century BC. He was probably 80 years old at the time. He was from a very noble and distinguished Athenian family, and it's unlikely that he actually spent himself much time with Socrates. The age difference might have made that impossible, but he had relatives who conveyed to him a good part of what Socrates had taught when his friends were simply engaged in conversation. And of course, the public events of Socrates' life would have been known to all Athenians. Plato himself was very unlucky in the political order. He was of a family that would have led to a very public career, and not only the example of Socrates, but his own difficulties with the 50 tyrant led him to go into exile of a sort, or at least to take a long journey. And he went into Magna Graecia, into southern Italy, and then into Sicily, and spent several lengthy stays at Syracuse trying to influence the tyrant of that city, Dionysius, and then later on Dionysius II, his son, all with great lack of success. When he settled back in Athens after his first Sicilian sojourn, he founded, to say it's come to be known, it is just historically famous as the Academy. And it's named after the fact that it met in a grove that was dedicated to Academus, a hero. But Academy now for us means the pursuit of learning, the gathering of people to discuss things in the hope of arriving at the truth. The mark of Socrates in the early dialogues of Plato, as we can call them, where Socrates is very much to the fore, 
is that in engaging in question, the exchange is not in, in an answer to that question. Very often the point of the exchange is to show that whereas we begin by thinking we know something, after a certain amount of inquiry and questioning, particularly being prodded by Socrates, we see that we really don't know what we claim to know at the beginning. So that the upshot of the dialogues is a rather negative one very often. You thought you knew what piety is? Well, after the discussion, you realize that you don't know that at all. Courage, the same thing. So most often in these early dialogues, the object of concern is some moral virtue, some character trait of the kind that Socrates is referring to in the Apology. But what you get is not an answer. What you get is an introduction to a way of discussion, of inquiry, and so forth. And the idea is that this is an essential element in the pursuit of truth. It's not a matter of someone going off in isolation and picking lint out of his navel and having great thought. It's the interchange between human inquirers that is more likely to lead us forward, if not necessarily to an answer, nonetheless to the progress of recognizing that we do not have an answer. For Plato, when we begin to discern between his giving us a fairly historical presentation of Socrates and when he is giving us his own distinctive outlook, what seems to be at the center of things is what is it that knowledge presupposes? What is it to know? And in the Mino, there is a famous passage in which Socrates is suggesting that knowing, learning, is remembering. Remembering. And one of the reasons he will say this is that he is accepting and working within the kind of dichotomy that Parmenides drew up between the sensible on the one hand and the intelligible on the other. But what Socrates does in this very dramatic dialogue, the Mino, which you will want to read and reread, he's in conversation with his friends and he makes this apparently astounding remark that, well, everybody already knows things and all you do when you're in the role of the teacher is do what a midwife does when a woman is giving birth. The midwife doesn't have the child. She simply facilitates the bringing forth of what the pregnant woman already has, already contains, so to say. So too with respect to the Socratic method. It's myutic. It's a midwife that enables us or pulls out of the mind of the interlocutor what's already there. Well, this sounds preposterous to some, and one of the people says, are you saying that this slave boy, this kid who's serving us at table, he knows, let's say, the incommensurability of the diagonal and the side of the square? I don't remember exactly if he does put that, but this is the problem, that Socrates says, sure he knows that. And then by dint of a series of questions, Socrates elicits yes and no remarks that create the impression and satisfy at least part of his audience that that uninstructed boy knew has within him this very abstruse truth of geometry so that this is meant to convey that the knowledge is already there and teaching is merely eliciting it, bringing it out, educating it, leading it forth, but you don't give anything in teaching. Nothing really new comes about except you remember. But in order to remember, there has to be something already there to remember. In the Phaedo, which is a dialogue that takes place in the death cell of Socrates, 
Very fittingly, perhaps, the question arises, it seems odd that friends visiting a man about to be executed would engage in one of these dialogues, philosophical dialogue, inquiries, but nonetheless that's what happens in the Phaedo. And fittingly enough, the topic that is raised is the immortality of the soul. The immortality of the soul. And this is not without its interest, as Socrates points out for him in his present plight. But it's clear that Socrates has no doubt whatsoever that he is headed for another place and better place, and that his conduct in this world is going to be definitive of what happens next. Exactly what that will be, of course, he doesn't know. But he's lived his life in this conviction that he is here in a kind of testing time, and the way in which he comports himself is absolutely decisive for the state of his soul and his soul is not going to cease to be when he dies. Now, how can this be known? Usually, when we are confronted with efforts to prove that there is an incorruptible part of us, that the soul is not something that ceases to be at the moment of death, it's a kind of projection forward. And we're talking about a future state, and this is the way, of course, in which the discussion begins in the Phaedo. But what emerges is rather this. Plato is interested in the previous existence of the soul. And he is thinking of the soul as something that is something in and of itself. It is myself, which then was incarcerated or placed within the body. And as a result of this immersion in matter and in the body, the soul forgets what it knew prior to it's coming to be in the body. And the suggestion is that in this prior existence, in this antecedent existence, the soul was acquainted with the really real, with the true. And now it's plunged into the body, it forgets those things, and it's trying to deal with just these sensible things around us, these changeable things, these things that seem hardly to be at all. But at any rate, with respect to the proof for the immortality of the soul, what Plato surprisingly perhaps does in the Phaedo is to say it's not a matter of whether the soul will survive this life, what we have to understand is that it pre-existed this life, so that the present state of the soul in the body is by way of being anomalous. This is an unnatural sort of condition for it, so that death is the release of the soul and its return presumably to the realm of the really real. This is a very powerful and dramatic portrait that we get in the Platonic Dialogue. They seem to be very abstract considerations, but there's always a setting. We're always conscious of the voice of the speaker, so that the influence of these dialogues on us is hardly to be reduced to a kind of abstract following of the argument. There is a dramatic impact. It's very much like following an intellectual drama where we're caught up in it and we are engaged more than merely mentally and are carried along. And it would be the dull person indeed who could read Plato and not at least initially feel absolutely persuaded of the truth of the central point being made, which in the Phaedo is our real self, our soul, existed prior to its imprisonment in the body.
When Plato in the Phaedo suggests to us that the soul existed prior to its existence in the body, and that this life, the combination of soul and body, is more or less a natural condition for the soul, and that with death there is the release of the soul back into its pristine and more appropriate mode of existence with the really real. He is conveying to us in a very powerful way how we are to regard this temporal endurance or duration that we call our life. What is it that we are to be doing during this period? I mentioned to you earlier his memorable remark that to philosophize is to learn how to die. And not simply now with respect to the noble example of Socrates, but with respect to this understanding of what a human being is, a soul imprisoned in a body in this life. So how are we to regard this temporal existence of the soul? In the Republic of Plato, which is, of course, perhaps the most famous of the dialogues, it's a very lengthy dialogue, and it has as its ostensible purpose to discuss justice. It begins, as the early dialogues do, which are far shorter, with a question arising as to what just fair behavior in the state is. And you get the crashing of very conflicting notions of what is success in living in the city, in political life, we might say. But what Plato goes on to, quite typically, is to use this question to raise anew what it is to be a human being and what it is to be a good human being. Not simply good in the state, but good as a human being. So he suggests that we will really want to talk about the structure of the human being, and the state is merely the individual writ large, so that if we talk about that, it's merely because it's somewhat easier to lay hold of. But what we're really interested in is the condition of each individual soul as such, and not merely, again, its role in the civil community. In the course of the Republic, we come upon a sequence of passages which have just caught the minds and the imagination of everyone who has read the Republic. Plato gives us a story, an allegory, which is meant to convey to us what a human being is, what our original condition is, what our task is, and how that task can be fulfilled. And Socrates is the speaker. Socrates says, imagine a cave, and in that cave are prisoners, and they are so manacled and chained that they must look at the back wall of the cave. Behind the prisoners who are staring at the back wall of the cave, that is towards the mouth of the cave now, there is a kind of dividing wall. And it's got a little ledge on the side towards the mouth of the cave. And between that ledge and the mouth of the cave, there is a fire burning. And slaves walk along the ledge, and they hold up above the top of the wall figures of real things, statuettes, so to speak. And the shadows of these things are cast on the back wall of the cave. And the prisoners, who again are so chained that they can only look at the back wall of the cave, are looking at this kaleidoscope of images on the wall of the cave and talking about them and thinking these are real things these shadows of images. Well, Socrates says, let us now release the prisoners. Let us unchain them. And we turn them around towards the mouth of the cave. 
And the first reaction of the prisoners is, of course, they're blinded by the light of this fire. But gradually their eyes become accustomed to that light. And then they look and see these statuettes passing along above that dividing wall. And now their epistemological allegiance turns from the shadows to the images. And they say, well, I thought those shadows were real, but now I see they're merely shadows of these images. So now I will take these images to be real. And that is a kind of progress. Now Plato says, let us lead them outside the cave. So they come outside the cave, and again, they're blinded by the light of the sun. And now around them are real things, the things of which the images were images, and the shadows of the images were only indirectly at one remove or two removes related to. And now they can't really look around, they're so blinded, but there is a kind of pool in front of them, and they see the reflections of real things in the pool, and they first consider and talk about those, and then gradually they're able to look out and look at the things themselves. Well, this allegory has, as I say, fascinated the imaginations of anyone who has read it, and I hope you will substitute for this very poor summary of the passage, your own close reading of it, and read it, of course, having begun at the beginning of the Republic, so that you're caught up in the sequence of the discussion, and then see how this particular allegory works within the Republic. But this is, again, a view of our being in a condition at first where we are sort of enslaved by our ignorance. And it's only by means of education being led forth from the cave. It's only by means of coming to understand in a graded fashion the really real and to see that originally we were satisfied with shadows of images or the images themselves and only gradually can we come into the realm where the real things themselves can be recognized. This is an allegory, and it's an allegory of the way in which we move from the things of this world to the really real. And this is the mark of Plato's thought. And we see it in the suggestion that knowledge is remembrance. We see it in his account of the immortality of the soul. What is the appropriate object for the human mind are really real things. And of course, Plato doesn't mean ultimately by that simply the real things around us in the world as opposed to imitations or images or shadows of their images and so forth. He is suggesting that there is something beyond that is the object of knowledge. And the way in which he will persuade us of that is more or less as follows. Again, with the slave boy of the Phaedo. First of all, the discussants at the table say, I wonder if he knows what equality is, and how would we find out? Well, we say, why don't you go out into the yard and bring back two equal sticks? Now, this is a very amenable slave boy, and we can just send him on errands like this at will, and he fulfills them and comes back very docilely and hands Socrates two equal sticks. And Socrates looks at them, and they're close, but they're really not absolutely equal, are they? And everyone agrees, no, they're not absolutely equal. Would it be possible to just go out and find two absolutely equal sticks? 
And the company says, well, that's probably not likely. And we might think that with more precise means and so forth, we could do that. But we know that in physics, it's very difficult to talk about two things as absolutely of the same length. I mean, we've got the meter bar in Paris and so forth, but whether anything actually matches that perfectly, we're permitted to doubt. Socrates and Plato are not thinking in terms of these very precise ways in which you might make cuts of, say, a length of whatever and come up with two absolutely equal ones. But for practical purposes, we would say, well, these are equal. They're equal enough for practical purposes. But what Socrates gets the company to allow is that they've never come upon any two absolutely equal physical objects. And then the question arises, where did we get the idea of equality? And Plato's suggestion is going to be, look, we didn't derive the notion of equality from instances of it that we encountered, because we're admitting that we never did encounter exact instances of equality. So we must bring to our experience a concept of equality that is not derivative from that experience. And where did we get it? This is where remembrance, you see, comes in. It's as if our mind is, in some sense, already furnished with knowledge. And what the role of physical objects, our sense experience, the world of appearance is, is to trigger off the remembrance of those ideal entities. And this is what, for Plato, knowledge is to come into the presence, the cognitive presence of the really real, equality itself. Not approximate instances of equal things, but equality itself, goodness itself, justice itself, and the like. So that it's not as if we had some immediate experience of these realities of justice and goodness and piety and courage and so forth. All of the things that we call just or courageous or good will be good up to a point, good of a kind, but they will not be absolutely perfect. So the question, again, will always arise for Plato, well, where did we get this notion of absolute perfection, of justice, of goodness, of equality, and the like? And his answer, his suggestion, is going to be, we already had it. Our soul was furnished with that kind of knowledge by its acquaintance with these absolutely real things prior to its immersion in the body. And what this life is, is the gradual emergence from forgetfulness, which is by remembering those real things. And what triggers off the remembering, apart from the adroit questioning of someone like Socrates, are the things around us and our recognition that while we call them equal, they're not ever really equal. We call them good. They're not really good through and through. They're not fully just and the like. So that knowledge calls us to the things of another world. Knowledge has as its object, knowledge in the full sense, ideal entities, the forms, the platonic ideas. In that series of passages in the middle books of the Republic to which I'm referring, you have the allegory of the cave, and then you have the divided line, and finally the equation or the analogy between the sun, in which we see the things around us, and the idea of the good as the kind of supreme ideal reality in the light of which, metaphorically speaking, we understand whatever else we understand.
In those passages, there is not only this allegory of how we might proceed, but as the divided line passage, which is too complicated to deal with verbally, orally like this, we have the presentation of a kind of curriculum, that is, a course of study that must be pursued if one is to achieve the end of knowledge. And in that curriculum, what Plato will suggest is that there must be a long immersion in the study of mathematics. Mathematics for Plato, as I suppose for anyone, is a way in which we readily transcend the physical objects around us and turn our attention on ideal idealizations or ideal entities. We talk about a straight line. Are there any straight lines in the physical world? Not in the way in which we define them in Euclidean geometry. Circles, squares, triangles. These ideal entities in geometry have no match in the physical world. Approximations, perhaps, but no more. So that in mathematics and in talking about numbers, three, four, well, we're not talking about just three oranges, four apples, and so forth, but three in all its abstract splendor and four and the like. We learn the tables without any notion that we're counting anything other than the units of numbers themselves. So it's as if mathematics is a easily available way in which we can rise above the immersion in the things of this world and concentrate on truths which bear not on these things but on ideal entities. The question as to the status of mathematical and geometrical entities will be, because of this approach of Plato, a very vexed one for everyone else. If you don't want to maintain, as Plato seems to want to maintain, that there is triangularity which exists somewhere independently of any triangular objects in the world, and of course independently of my individual thinking, then you have to come up with some other account of what it is we're talking about when we talk about the properties of a triangle and we say that the sum of the internal angles of a plane triangle are equal to, what, 180 degrees. What are we talking about? Which triangle? And if somebody asks that, we say, we're talking about this triangle, a scalene, let's say, or isosceles triangle, but not one that you could point to in the world around you. And if you draw a triangle on the board, the truths that you are deriving from the discourse, the mathematical discourse, are not about that picture. They're not about that picture. That picture doesn't exemplify in any perfect way what you are talking about. A fascinating way in which we can readily come to see what Plato's theory of knowledge is calling us towards, calling us towards another world. And it's in the light of this that we can think of the etymology of the term philosophy. We're engaged in a rapid trip through ancient and medieval philosophy. It's with the ancients, with Plato and Aristotle chiefly, that we get a sense of what the term philosophy means. Etymologically, we know it's the pursuit or the love of wisdom. But for both Plato and Aristotle, wisdom is ultimately knowledge of the divine, of that which transcends the realm of change, those things which hardly exist at all however solid they are and however bedrock they are in our own experience and language and understanding, nonetheless their hold on existence is extremely precarious. They're all, as we would say, contingent 
They don't necessarily exist. So that the pursuit of philosophy is through these things, either in the Platonic way or as we will see in the Aristotelian way, to something that is beyond, which transcends them, which in the term that became current after Aristotle, things which are metaphysical, beyond the physical. So the drive of knowledge, the search for knowledge as we have it in the middle books of the Republic is through the things that we can experience to the divine or the really real. And for Plato, this looks to be a highly populated realm of things beyond the sensible reality, justice and piety and equality, triangularity, circularity, all these ideals are presented to us as sort of existing in and of themselves in a realm different from and apart from, separate from the realm of physical objects. In the presentation of those ideal entities in the Republic, there is one that is supreme. Goodness is supreme over all the other ideas. Now, this is not merely a head trip, so to speak. It's not merely getting our minds working correctly. For Plato, this process that I'm putting before you is at once an achievement or a progression in cognition and in moral betterment. What we will find in discussions of the acquisition of knowledge and the role of sensible reality in that acquisition is a almost subtle introduction of the notion that we are pulled towards the things of this world. We are pulled towards changeable and evanescent objects and we can tend to put our complete attention on them. And this is to invest in what is temporary, what is unlasting, what cannot fully satisfy us. Huh? So it's not only, you see, a kind of epistemological point that our conceptual knowledge cannot be understood as derived from such knowledge that we have of sensible reality, as if we say, when that point is made, we say, okay, I'll deflect or turn my attention away from these things to the really real. No, we're caught up in this world of the sensible, so that sensible and sensual tend to merge in this kind of portrait. And what we see the need of, if there's going to be progression in knowledge from the sensible to the intelligible, from the contingent to the necessary, from the natural, let's say, to the divine, there has to be simultaneously, and as the other side of the coin, progression in virtue. And virtue for moral virtue. Moral virtue for Plato means the overcoming of our being captured by sensible objects. And they address themselves not merely to our cognitive apparatus, but to our appetites. They promise pleasure and pain, so that we tend to make judgments as to what we ought to do in terms of characterization of these sensible things and their relationship to us as possible sources of pleasure or pain. And that is one of the things that we have to overcome. Our life being what we are, as Plato has portrayed us, a soul which had an existence prior to its immersion in the body and which has a destiny of returning to that pristine state, it cannot 
find its fulfillment in these changeable and ultimately unsatisfying things. It's something that will be spoken of later in terms of the romantic agony. The pursuit of any particular object is the non-pursuit of all the others. So the romantic hero, when he falls in love with Desdemona, he's going to think of all the non-Desdemonas that he's not falling in love with, and his very pursuit of the object of his affection is going to seem to be a thwarting of what he really wants. So too Plato, without any allusion anachronistically to the romantic agony, is going to see any effort on our part to find fulfillment or satisfaction in the things of this world sort of ontologically impossible. There is just no match between what we really are, an eternal soul, and these evanescent, changeable, impermanent things. And if we put all of our stock in those, we are simply thwarting the whole purpose of a human life. So the study of philosophy in the sense of overcoming our attachments to the things of this world at the expense of what we ought to be attending to. This moral progress is one with progress in knowledge. They go hand in hand. So that philosophy for Plato is never simply a matter of using your mind correctly, but it is a way of life, as the cliche goes. Philosophy is not simply a theory or a series of questions and answers, but it is a way of existing, a way of organizing one's whole life. That's why when people devoted themselves to the study of philosophy in this magnificent period, the golden period of Greek philosophy in the fourth century, they didn't just say, well, I think I'll take a couple of credits in philosophy. I think I'll major in philosophy. This would be anachronistic, of course. They would take up residence in the academy and with no thought that they would graduate. So some scholars have suggested the analogy of the academy, not so much with a modern university or even a medieval university, but with, say, a religious order where people would come together to lead a regular life and to live in community and with the eye to a common objective to become what a human person is meant to become. And we are told that in the groves of academe there were shrines to the gods and so forth, and that there was something like ritual and religious observances in the usual sense which characterized the day of those in the academy. Underscoring, underscoring the main point I'm making, and that is that progression in knowledge and progression in the moral life go hand in hand for Plato. And you cannot move towards knowledge of the really real without lifting yourself up above the influence, attraction, and pull of the things of this world. And the way in which one lifts himself above that is not by some kind of abstract argument, but by the acquisition of virtues in this platonic sense, which can sound to us, and not wholly inaccurately, as the repression of our desires for sensible pleasure and avoidance of sensible pain. The relationship between the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of virtue is, as I've just tried to explain it, they're two ends of the same thought. One, you can't have the desired objective of philosophizing wisdom without both cognitive progress and moral progress, the two going hand in hand. 
And again, the aim, the telos, the goal of the whole thing is to return to the really real. And even in this life, to transcend the pull and tug of the things around us and to see them as kind of triggering off a remembrance, to use that language of Plato, of the really real. So that we don't identify the objects of thinking, of intelligence, of noose, with these changing things around us. These things are by way of being imitations or instances of the ideal reality. So that the epistemological status of material singulars is a problem that we might say Plato bequeathed to his school and to Aristotle and to all of us who have come after him. The paradoxes of learning that somehow you seem to have to already know what you're going to learn, what is the difference between the antecedent state and the subsequent state on the part of the learner? What's happened when he says, ah, I see. Is this truly novel or is this simply remembering what was latent in one's knowledge? It's because of this very elevated sense of the objective of human life and philosophizing, you can see, and living, human living in the appropriate way are just one thing. Philosophy isn't some kind of esoteric activity that some people engage in and other people do not. It is by way of being a description of the best way to live the life that all of us are living. Now, one of the things that interested Plato in political philosophy was that if you could build a city on the basis of truth as opposed to appearance, you would have a setting within which even those who didn't formally engage in philosophy would nonetheless profit from the fact that some had been able to devote themselves exclusively to that. So that the laws and so forth, the education, the music, all of these things would be conducive to a life of virtue. So that, again, whether or not someone had gone the full path along the route of philosophy, there's a sense in which there would be a trickle-down, so to speak, participation in it, and this would enable everyone in a well-ordered community to lead a fulfilled and appropriate human life. It was because Plato, by dint of sad experience in his hometown of Athens and then in Syracuse in Sicily, saw how imperfect were the arrangements, the governmental arrangements under which people live. They're living under tyrants who are simply using other people in the state for their own private benefit as opposed to a sense of a shared and common good of all those who are in a given polity. Plato, fairly early in his life in the Republic, devoted himself to the presentation of an ideal commonwealth. And it can strike us as being extremely utopian in its details. Late in his life, he wrote another work, The Laws, in which people will say, now he takes a more realistic view of how a community should be organized. It's more based on opinion than on knowledge, this distinction within Plato's epistemology. Whatever, what we have in both of these cases is paying attention to how political organization creates a setting within which the citizen can live a fulfilled and perfected human life, lead a good human life. That's the point of the organization of a state. It's the point of laws which regulate human conduct. To what purpose? 
in order to have the justice, the just order of the community, which is conducive to the fulfillment of everyone within that community. It is in the course of laying out this ideal commonwealth in the Republic that Plato speaks of that ancient quarrel between the poet and the philosopher that I mentioned early on. This quarrel is one that is triggered by the fact that in the Homeric epics, as I mentioned in the first lecture, in the Homeric epics, the gods, these transcendent, powerful entities living on Olympus, are portrayed as acting in terrible ways. They lust after women, they steal, they cheat, they lie, they deceive, and all the rest of it, and yet they are put forward because they're bigger than we are, I suppose, they're stronger, we're sort of at their mercy, and there has to be a kind of placating of them, a kind of adoration of them, a kind of right that is built up around this one or that one in order to enlist their help in our own enterprises. For Plato, this was an abomination. To put before the young this notion that the greatest of entities, presumably the gods or those, should behave in this way and that they are not subject to the same kind of assessment and appraisal as a human agent would be is a dreadful kind of education. And yet he is living in a society in which the poetic, the Homeric epics function in a fundamental way in Greek paideia or education, the rearing of the young. And so to come out against Homer is certainly countercultural for Plato, and we have to attend to what it is he's saying. It's often been said, or it's often hurriedly suggested, that Plato in his ideal commonwealth wanted to censor the poets. And, of course, we're all supposed to react in an appropriate way to the mention of the term censorship. This is one of the few things recognized as absolutely evil in our own time. And here is Plato being portrayed as a censor. This is the closed society, as one critic has put it. What Plato's interest in is in that the young should be presented with a true notion of what divinity is, what the gods are, so that that knowledge might function in an appropriate way in the lives that they're going to go on and live. And for him, it's just an abomination that poets should portray the gods as they have. We have to realize that in Greek education, it wasn't simply a matter that kids sat around and read the Odyssey or the Iliad. They memorized it. I mean, these two epics have come down to us, first of all, through a long oral tradition a bardic recitation of the books of the Iliad and the Odyssey known by heart. And so Greek children in learning Homer, what they would do is memorize and then enact the scenes that are depicted by Homer. So it's a participation and it's a kind of identification in the action and interpretation of events in the poem, which is far more profound than what we would think of as someone just curled up on a hammock in the backyard reading the Iliad. Huh? I mean, this is not what Plato was talking about. So too, when he talks about music, both he and Aristotle have a very strong notion of how the kind of music that young children are exposed to will morally shape them or dispose them so that a certain kind of music will shape them towards a kind of effeminacy and lack of virtue and so forth, and that kind of music has to be ruled out in the ideal commonwealth, which is being fashioned to bring people to the height of virtue. 
So there is an ancient quarrel between the poet and the philosopher, but Plato, we have to remind ourselves, is the most artful of philosophers. No one can read the dialogues of Plato without being aware of the fact that he's in the presence of a consummate literary artist. Plato is able to do things with the dialogues, with language, which just separate him out from almost any other philosopher in the subsequent history of philosophy. So that to depict him as being as such, opposed to poetic, that might convey the notion of some grimly prosaic figure who never met a metaphor he liked or something. This is not Plato. And we have to take it contextually and see it in terms of the ideal of human life that he is establishing within this ideal commonwealth and consequently what would be included and what would be excluded. Now in the development of the key doctrine of Plato, which is always to call our mind beyond the sensible, beyond the changeable, to the ideal entities, which are called variously forms and ideas, there came a point in Plato's career when he addressed the problems which must necessarily come when we speak in this way. And this is where Parmenides enters the Platonic dialogues at a crucial point. It's almost as if, as Plato says in the Republic, wherever we have a common noun, we postulate an ideal entity answering to that noun. So if you use the term bed, there are lots of beds in the world, but there's a bed, there is bedness somewhere in the realm of ideal entities in virtue of which these individual beds are and are what they are. Of course, that's an artificial entity, but uh, petunias, horses, cows, trees, and so forth, there are millions of individual trees of a given species, but they all share in, participate, exemplify the ideal which exists elsewhere and is not subject to the vagaries of change and chance as these instances are. In the Parmenides, as I mentioned earlier, we have here a young Socrates who is in conversation with venerable Parmenides. And Parmenides has the function in the opening of that dialogue to pose difficulties for the doctrine of ideas, of ideal entities for the young Socrates. And it looks as if he's blowing it out of the water. And it's important for us in terms of our next lecture when we turn to Aristotle, it's important for us to realize that there isn't a single difficulty that Aristotle raises for the Platonic ideas that wasn't previously raised by Plato himself within the academy. This was something that would be up for discussion. But the Parmenides marks a crisis in Plato's conception of what it is that knowledge is all about. And in a series of dialogues that follow on that, the sophist and the statesman, we find Plato looking for another method that would enable him. And this is important, and I'll end with this note. When Plato lets Parmenides enumerate, and with great force, the objections to the doctrine of ideas, and there seems to be no reply that Socrates, or maybe you and I, could come up with to these objections. The upshot of the discussion is not, therefore, we have to get rid of the ideas. You know, the upshot of it is this, we must now search for a better way of defending the concept of the idea. Why? Without ideal entities, knowledge is impossible but knowledge is a reality, therefore there must be ideal entities, 
And if we have failed to counter objections to them, we must bend ourselves more sternly to the task and make it inescapable that beyond the things of this world, there are these ideal entities to knowledge of which we are called. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.